0: So in Luke 4, uh, Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, is the story of Jesus in the wilderness where Jesus is, is led into the wilderness by the Spirit and he uh, fasts there and uh, is there for, for 40 days. And, uh, and in that story, he is tempted three times. And there's a curious thing in, um, in, in Luke 4 and the way he describes it and, it and it kind of caught my attention. And that is, it begins by saying that Jesus went into the wilderness full of the Spirit. Yeah, that's what it says. It says that the Spirit of God leads him into the wilderness and he's full of the Spirit. But then at the end of this experience, Luke says this, it says he left in the power of the Spirit. So Jesus enters the wilderness full of the Spirit, but he leaves it in the power of the Spirit. And uh, this got me thinking that we... um, that we are similar, that, we are in, that many of us are in the same spot. Many of us have, a, have, have this same question that I'm asking, which is this. How does the fullness of the Spirit become the power of the Spirit? How does the fullness of the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, having the Spirit of God, become the power of the Spirit in our lives? And it's a, it's a question that many of us have. It's a place where, where many of us are. Um, and I often ask this question, why do I have... Why do I have the faith of a mountain, but I cannot move a mustard seed? Right? Why do I have the faith of a mountain, but I cannot move a mustard seed? How come I have all this experience of God, but yet I don't see the kind of power that I'm longing for? And I just want to say, like, if you've never had, if you've never had like a, a powerful encounter with God, if you've never, you know, experienced His love or been filled with the Spirit, then this really is the right place for you. You've you found the right place. We're really good at that. But um, and I encourage you just to ha- hang around long enough, and, and you'll you'll feel it if you didn't already this morning. Um, but most people, most people have had these experiences of God, where they've been filled with the Spirit, where they've um, heard the Father's love. Most people here, anyway. And But we, we're still left with this question, how, how does the fullness of the Spirit in me become the power of the Spirit in my life? And so we're going to look at Luke 4, we're going to look at this, um, the story of Jesus in the wilderness. Now I'm going to give you a little context before we read it. So, Uh, It's good to know what just happened and it's good to know what's just about to happen. So when this story of Jesus in the wilderness is, what's just happened is Jesus has had his baptism. And so Jesus has been baptized by John in the River Jordan and he hears the Father's love. Where, where the Father tells him that he loves him and that he's well-pleased with him. Before he's done anything, he just tells him that he's loved and that he's pleased with him. And the Spirit of God falls upon him, right? And that's what the fullness of the Spirit is. And then just after this wilderness, when Jesus is led out of the wilderness in, into the power of the Spirit, is when he begins his ministry. When he, he goes into the synagogue and he inaugurates the kingdom of God. And, and he, he comes out and announcing, saying, this is why I'm here. This is what I'm here to do. I'm here to inaugurate the kingdom of God. And, and he quotes, in the synagogue he quotes Isaiah 61 where it's in the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor to proclaim, um, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set uh, free those who are oppressed because this is the year of the Lord's favor and so what happens before this is um, the baptism and the love and the, the Holy Spirit and the good stuff and what happens um, after this is the kingdom Right? Jesus' ministry. And so we're going to look at what happens in between those two things, which is in the wilderness. Okay, so Luke 4, let's go. Verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me. And I give it to whom I will. If you then then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And the report about him went out through all the surrounding country. Jesus enters the wilderness in the fullness of spirit but leaves in the power. And how, how does that happen? What happens in between? It is testing and it is wilderness. Testing is what happens between the, the baptism and the inauguration of the kingdom. And I want to talk about testing Because testing is something that if you are a Christian and if you follow him, you're going to go through testing, you're going to go through temptation, you're going to go through the things that Jesus went through, you're going to have wilderness seasons and times in your life. But the thing about testing is, is that we often think of testing in in a certain way, in a kind of academic way, which is, you know, pass-fail, right? It's like this pass-fail mentality, It's, it's like we think of testing, we think of exams, it's like you sit down, you have to know the answers, if you don't know the answers, you fail, Right? It's about being graded. It's about being assessed. It's about reaching a standard. Correct? That's kind of what we think about when testing. So we often think, "Well, the Lord's testing us, and like you know, we—he's testing us, and we can either pass or we can fail, right? They're the only two options: pass or fail." But I think the kind of testing that happens to Jesus here, and the kind of testing that happens to us in temptation um, and this testing, isn't so much pass-fail. But it's something different. What it is? There's a different kind of testing, and that is like when you're cooking. Okay, so when you're cooking and you're making a recipe, now you have all the ingredients and you're making the recipe. But at some point, you know, you've done everything that it's told you to do. But at some point, you have to test it, right? At some point, you have to taste it. At some point, you have to see if it's ready, right? And it isn't about, are you going to throw it out or not, right? It isn't about like, oh, uh, you know, I've got this thing I'm cooking. You know, if it's not perfect, the first time I taste it, I'm going to chuck it out. No, it's not that. It's like you taste it and you're like, okay, it's not quite ready yet. Leave it a few minutes longer. And then you taste it again. It's like, oh, no, it's too sweet. Let's add some salt, right? It's not about pass fail. It's about being ready. Testing is about being ready. Testing is about the right time, the right thing at the right time, and what God is doing when He's testing us is getting us ready. He's not seeing if we're going to pass or not; He's getting us ready. That's what He's doing. I don't know if you've ever failed a test, but it, it's not a nice feeling, is it? Um, apparently, I've never failed anything, so it's like—that's <coughs> not true. I, I failed uh, high school French, um, but I'm kind of proud about that. So. it's not about that kind of pass-fail testing. It's about being ready. God is making us ready. So what does this testing look like? Well, Jesus is offered three things by the enemy. Firstly, it says in verse 3, if you are the son of God, then command this stone to become bread. So the enemy is saying to Jesus, hey, you provide for yourself. You look after yourself. You create whatever you want to create, everything that you need, you just make, you just have, you just achieve. And that temptation is economic power. He's tempting Jesus with economic power. And the father had called Jesus to live simply. The father had called Jesus to be homeless and to rely on him for everything. And because the temptation would be for Jesus when he entered his ministry, when he goes in, into his ministry, his three years of ministry, the temptation would be to every time he's hungry or to every time there's not immediately food right there because he's homeless and he's living simply, to, you know, just to get some stones and rustle up a Ruth's Chris filet mignon, you know, like at, <laughs> at any point. But the Lord has called him to trust him. The Lord is saying, no, you don't just make your own food. You trust me to provide for you. You trust me to make it for you. You trust me to give it to you. And so Jesus then quotes scripture back to the enemy and basically ends up saying, no, no, I'm going to trust God. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to trust God. The second thing that the enemy offers Jesus is in verse five. And it says, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. So the enemy offers Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. He offers him political power. And this would be a temptation for Jesus in ministry too because he saw how King Herod ruled Israel. He saw what, how Caesar ran his empire. He saw people like Pontius Pilate. And Jesus would have known that he would have done a better job than all of those, right? Can we agree with that? Jesus would have done a better job at ruling the nation of Israel than any of those people, right? Right? Yeah, so it would have been a temptation. And we see in the scriptures that people try and make him this king all the time, don't they? They try and make him king of Israel. But Jesus knows that that's not what he's called to do. And again, he quotes scripture and, and basically ends up saying again, no, I will trust in God. I will trust his plan for me, not the plan that you would give me. And the third thing that um, the enemy offers Jesus is uh, he takes him above the temple. So he puts him above the temple, which is the seat of religious power, the most important place for Jews. And he says, if you are the son of God, then throw yourself down here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. The third temptation was religious power, to be above the temple, to have the temple, to rule with religious power. And again, Jesus would have seen the Pharisees And the rabbis. And as a burgeoning, growing rabbi himself, he must have loved the idea of like, oh, I could take this on. I could do a better job at running the temple. I could take a better job of running this religion. The people of God would end up being who they're meant to be. But again, Jesus says, no. That's not how it's meant to happen. I am not meant to be this high priest. I'm not going to be a Pharisee. I'm not going to run the temple. No, I'm going to trust God. And you see the three things that are offered to Jesus that the enemy offers him. The irony is, is that Jesus will receive all of those things anyway. Right? Jesus is going to receive all of the power, all of the blessing, all of the honor, all of the glory. We know that and he knew that too. And so what the enemy does is that he offers us either that we already have or that that we will eventually receive anyway. That's all he ever offers us, is what we already have or what we will already receive anyway. If you look back to the Garden of Eden, what's that first sin? What's that first temptation? It's it's when he says uh, to Adam and Eve, surely if you eat that fruit, you will be like God. Right? Isn't that what he says? Surely if you eat that fruit, you will be like God. What's the irony there? The irony there is they were already like God. They were already like God. God had put his image in them and he breathed his life into them. They were already like God. The enemy offered Adam and Eve nothing they didn't already have. And the enemy is always trying to get you to chase after that you already have and own and possess or... That you will receive anyway, out of God's timing, before you can handle it. And temptation can be obvious, right? So temptation can be obvious. It can be like, oh, there's that thing, I want it, I shouldn't have it, but I want to and I'm going to take it, right? That's the obvious temptations that we have in life. There's a thing, I want it, I know I shouldn't have it, right? That's the obvious temptation. But there are far more subtle temptations and I've got a little video that kind of helps explain that.
1: A guy with a gun, turns out later it was plastic, races down the aisle towards the cockpit. I stick my leg out. He's down. I'm on top. Then five other passengers jump on him too. I'm a hero. I'm on chat shows. I tell my story well. I hint at broader issues. I've got views about security, the economy, the environment. The PM invites me to lunch. People are listening to me. It's a pivotal moment. I rewind time. I meet Mark Zuckerberg. We get talking. He's got this idea. He's wondering if it could work. I encourage him. Frenetic times. We cut a deal. I'm sitting on a good chunk of Facebook shares. I get up an hour earlier in the mornings, sit in my dressing gown at the kitchen table with a mug of tea. I used to want to write a novel. Now, I'm actually doing it. All my observations of people over the years are going into it. This is what I really think and feel. The atmosphere at dawn, the sadness of childhood. I'm writing hard. My agent really loves the manuscript. Dave Eggers has written a brilliant blur. I've just heard it's on the Booker long list. The guys at work are not going to believe it. I'm introduced to Kira Knightley. She looks me in the eye, we smile. There's a connection. She's lonely. I understand her. One day she drops by the office. I'm very modest about it. She tells me what she really feels, that she hates being famous, that she cries sometimes. I hold her hand, give her a hug. I'm her best friend and her lover. I have magic powers. I can go back in time and be 16, but know everything I know now. I keep my brain, but swap my body. I sail through exams, yeah it's a little boring maybe, but it's so satisfying hitting every single grade. I go to a different university, I know exactly what to say and do at all times. Seduction works so well. I have youth and experience. No one says no to me. Not even Alice. I've just read in the news that guy from college who was always ahead of me, who got that huge job in banking, is really sickly. It's horrible but a relief. I look almost like I do now, but without anyone noticing, gradually, line by line, the wrinkles and the blemishes fade. My mouth becomes a touch more symmetrical. The lips a little more pretty. My ears get just a little smaller and ease themselves over a few weeks more neatly into the side of my head. People smile at me more often in the street. My colleagues listen. I'm still me. Just the way I was supposed to be. We keep quiet about the fantasies we have because we're not sure how other people will react. But they're doing the same thing. We should go easy on ourselves. A fantasy is sometimes just the best shape a wish can take. We don't always have a plan, and it may just be the best we can do. But fantasies also mean freedom from responsibility. We're free to make it perfect and not have to worry about what it would actually be like in reality.
0: Well, he goes on to say at the end there is that the fantasies that we have are uh, the wishes that we want, the things that we want, the things that we desire, but this kind of perfect reality, right, where nothing is difficult. You can probably turn the lights up now. Um... Uh, where nothing is difficult, where it all comes easy, where everything just works out, right? And it's everything we want and everything we have. The enemy offers us a fantasy where everything is great, where we are top of the class or head of the board or full of economic or religious or political power or whatever. We are attractive, We wake up and we're 30 pounds lighter. If if I just just lose that weight, I'm going to be happier, right? But it is divorced from the reality of how difficult and complicated and painful life is and what it takes to achieve. And Jesus is instead not focused on these these fantasies. When he's offered these fantasies by the enemy, he rejects them. And instead, he focuses on a reality. One reality. A true reality, and that is the kingdom of God trusting in God and bringing his kingdom and it's very important that we pay attention to what we fantasize about a lot of those fantasies I know the video didn't quite play properly but you got the gist right and um you know a lot of the they, they come quite close to home don't they you know like oh I you know the time where you know I wish I remember the big game where it was the final and I could have made the tackle but I didn't and I wish if I just had that then the glory, you know, and the adoration. We would have won and we would have, it would have been fantastic. It's those kind of fantasies. They tell us something important about ourselves, don't they? They tell us something. They let us know where we're weak. The temptation lets us know where we are weak. And knowing your weakness is vital for kingdom power. Knowing your weakness is vital for kingdom power. Not so you avoid your weaknesses, not so that you try to fix your weaknesses, but so the power of God may come into your life through them. That's why you need to know how you are weak. That's why you go through a period of testing and tempting, is that the Lord needs to show you how you are weak. Because it is through those weaknesses, through those bro- that brokenness, through those cracks, that the power of the kingdom is released into your life and into the world. There's a great uh, Leonard Cohen lyric in the song Anthem, and it says, Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That is how the light gets in. This is what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians 12. It says this, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations i.e. I'm experiencing so much of God that I'm pretty awesome. (laughs) To keep me from becoming conceited about that. A thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. And three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave to me. But he said this, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So why do you need to know your weaknesses? You need to know them in order so that you know that his grace is sufficient for you. Because without it, it's not going to be grace. You're going to think it's you. Without it, you're going to think it's you. And so you have to know what your weaknesses are. And it is through those weaknesses that his power is being made perfect. And this is the incredible thing, is that we read Paul, this happens to Paul, and we're like, well, yeah, of course you're Paul, but this happened to Jesus too. This happened to Jesus too. Jesus needed to know where he was weak. Jesus needed to know what would tempt him in his ministry. Jesus needed to know, and that's the tempting and the testing, was to get him ready, was to get him ready so that he would always trust in the Lord, which of course he did, and he was tempted, he had weaknesses, but he never gave in, ever. The testing reveals the weaknesses, so we know how God is going to make his power perfect in us. Your weakness will lead to your breakthrough, your weakness will lead to the kingdom power you're going to see. Your weakness will be the place where the power of God enters. And we can see that by what Jesus does with those three temptations. And so what Jesus does with those three temptations that he has in the wilderness is he turns them totally around in his ministry. Okay, so the first one, economic power. And it's it's like, okay, you make bread. You take some stones and you make some bread. And Jesus says, no, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take a couple of fish and a couple of loaves and I'm going to feed thousands of people. Not myself. I'm going to feed thousands of people. That's what I'm going to do. You give me this temptation, I'm going to do that. What I'm going to do, I'm going to turn it around and bless thousands of people. That's what I'm going to do. And He's offered the kingdoms of the earth. He's offered all the political power. And Jesus says, no, I reject all that political power. And what I'm going to do is instead of the kingdoms of the world that you're offering me, I'm going to establish the kingdom of heaven. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to establish the kingdom of heaven here on earth And I'm going to rule the kingdom of heaven. He subverts every political power. The kingdom of heaven subverts all the political power of this earth. And he's offered the religious power. And he says, you would make me this kind of figure. You would make me this kind of rabbi. You would would exalt me in this way. You would give me the temple. I tell you what, I'm going to destroy the temple. That's what I'm going to do. You offer me the temple, I'm going to destroy the temple and I'm going to raise it again in three days and I will be the temple. I will be the temple and my people will be the temple. So this is what God does because he's just so wonderfully redemptive, isn't he? That he takes these temptations, that he takes our weaknesses and he gets them and he turns them around and he makes them into power. He makes them into kingdom. He makes them into glory for himself. He's just so wonderfully redemptive. He just does this time and time again in our lives. He takes our temptations. He takes our weaknesses and he turns them around. But you need to know what those weaknesses are because otherwise you'll miss out. Otherwise you won't see them. Jesus leaves the wilderness in the power of the Spirit and announces the kingdom and begins his ministry in the kingdom. And many of us here, you know, have had uh, experiences of God, have had those baptism experiences where we've heard the Father's love and we've, and we've received the, the, a filling of the Holy Spirit. And RCC is 10 years old and maybe, maybe you were here in the beginning, maybe the first time you had those experiences was 10 years ago and over the course of the 10 years or, or five years or three years or six months that you've been here, you're starting to get to the point where you're like, I need to see more of the power of God in my life you know i had the, i've had amazing experiences i continue to have amazing experiences but i need to see more of the power of god in my life how does the fullness of god become the power of god and it may feel like you've been in a season of testing or tempting of preparation of readiness but you know how the fullness of god becomes the power of god through tempting wilderness, but also through leaving wilderness. Eventually you have to leave the wilderness. Eventually you have to get up and you have to go and you have to go into the synagogue and you have to say, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor and that I will see the oppressed go free. I will see The poor fed. I will see the blind seeing. I will see the sick healed. That the year of the Lord's favor is now. Right now. Right now. And it's the call to us is. To know our weakness. The call for us is to be humble. The call for us is to lean on God's grace. The The call on us is to trust in God. But it's also to step out of the wilderness. It's also to walk in the kingdom of God. To set our lives away from those fantasies. It's time to move away from those fantasies of everything's going to, wouldn't it be great if I had Apple stocks 20 years ago? Wouldn't it be great if, you know, I, was, I got the promotion? Wouldn't it be great if all my kids had su- successful careers? So to move out of the fantasies and into the present reality of the kingdom of God right here, right now. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is here. And this is what, this is how you move from the fullness of God, like the filling of the Holy Spirit and into the power of the Spirit is by setting your heart and your life upon the kingdom of God to declare that this is the year of the Lord's favour right now today August 2015 in Jacksonville, Florida the kingdom is here today and that's why I want us to, to walk into to step into to, to long for to focus upon to set our lives upon today So we're going to do that. All right, let's stand.